Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm your host, Leslie Chang. On today's show, our producer, Miles Chair, shares a story that takes place in Cambodia over hundreds of years, revolving around food, water, and human conflict. Miles takes us into the complicated history of the region and includes some of his own observations and reflections from reporting the story. As a quick note, in one part of this episode, you'll hear a few people describing the Cambodian killing fields and what they saw there. Some of the descriptions are graphic, so we wanted to give you fair warning if that sounds like something you'd prefer to skip. All right, here's Miles. Today on Generation Anthropocene... We all loaded on the bus and and got ready like it was any other day doing some touristy things in Cambodia. We visit the troubled history of Cambodia and the unique intersection of food, water, and conflict. During the 800s, they had a million and a half people that they fed through that irrigated system. We see how one ruthless dictator's corrupted agricultural ideal led to genocide. I start walking and I see these signs. At one point, you're walking and you see a little sign that says, watch the bones, don't step on the bones. So there is this sort of experience of really feeling like this is a place that still needs police tape around it. It's it's not a not an unnatural place, right? There's all this all this nature around, but it feels you you just just burning in your stomach when you're walking through about where am I and what what happened here. And we investigate the healing processes that untangle centuries worth of agricultural practices and human strife. How deeply can those scars run from what happened in the past? They run so deeply that it affects the, not only the healthcare system but it affects the drinking water. The country of Cambodia sits in the corner of Southeast Asia, tucked in between Vietnam and Thailand. Today, the capital city of Phnom Penh is home to over one and a half million people and serves as the economic center for the country. Double-digit economic growth rates in recent years have triggered a boom with rising real estate prices, thriving commercial centers, and new hotels for the tourism industry. But even within the city limits are reminders of Cambodia's troubled history. In many ways, the story of Cambodia is a story of the push and pull of agriculture and human conflict. It's a legacy that goes back hundreds of years, with roots in the 9th century, and continues to influence the country today. 
I first learned of this story from Scott Thundorf, a soil and water science professor at Stanford's School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. He's been working in Cambodia for over a decade. The Angorian Empire lasted from 880 up into 1400s. And the rise and fall are really interesting is that they revolve around agriculture and water. So during the 800s, they put in a very elaborate irrigation system that first uh, was composed of what are called baris. They're holding ponds, if you will. So think of a, a, a vast reservoir. Arjun Krishnaswamy is a college senior, and he recently visited Cambodia with Scott to study its complex water history. I spoke with him about visiting the reservoirs, the Barais. We went to one, one of these structures where it's essentially just a, a blocking of the flow so that it just fills this entire relatively flat area. And so you can look out for just miles. It seems endless. You know, when you're standing there looking out at this massive expanse of land that just fills with water, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about. And those reservoirs were filled with water that was coming down out of the, the local watershed. So the mountains, in other words, feeding into these barais. You have this Mekong River that comes down, and during the monsoon season, it increases in size exponentially, and then it, it actually turns this other river around. And that's the river that flows. It's one of the only rivers in the world that flows different directions during different parts of the year. And so that river actually flows towards Angkor Wat during the, the monsoon season. And it comes in, so the river reverses direction, it flows towards this ancient capital of Cambodia and the bries would fill up, then they could use gravity feed to move that water via canals out into the surrounding area where the population lived. And they were able then, by via these <clears throat> bries and canals, to be able to, to have irrigated agriculture, normally in the area of, of uh, probably about the state of Wisconsin, something on that, maybe a little bit smaller than that. Uh, and they had a million and a half people that they fed through that irrigated system. If you look at the Mayan Empire at the same, normally about the same time, they had roughly about 100,000 people in the area that the Khmer Empire or the Angorian Empire had with, uh, had a million and a half people in that, that same area. So they were really had an incredible production system for, uh, for agriculture to feed the people. The Angkor Empire lasted for nearly 700 years, thriving in the jungles of Southeast Asia with their barais and canals. The collapse of the empire was just as complex as the irrigation systems they had built. Among the many factors that led to its collapse were a changing climate and increased conflict with nearby Siam. During the 15th century, we went into a period of very strong El Nino. And when we get a strong El Nino, the um, monsoons that feed Cambodia become very weak. And so they went into a, basically a century of uh, drought or um, dominant drought period for over a century. And that was what then led to their demise, is that they could, could no longer uh, maintain their irrigated agricultural system. During its height, when food and water were available to one and a half million people, the Angkor Empire was relatively peaceful. But when the water dried up, Angkor and Siam found themselves battling over resources. At this point in Cambodia's history, the story of the powerful forces of agriculture and human conflict hadn't changed from this familiar narrative. The two continued to push and pull against each other. 
The agricultural ideal embodied by the temples at Angkor Wat remained imprinted on the minds of many Cambodians for centuries. It was a source of pride and cultural heritage, even as the country began to industrialize. By the mid-20th century, Cambodia was a thriving region similar to modern-day Singapore with an expanding economy and close ties to India and the West. But the 1960s and early 1970s brought tension to the area that exploded in the form of the Vietnam War and in local clashes within Cambodia's borders. Into this chaos emerged a small group that lived in Cambodia's highlands. They called themselves the Khmer Rouge, and their leader, Pol Pot, would become one of the most cruel and ruthless dictators in history. And for me, it's here when the familiar narrative of the push and pull of agriculture and human conflict becomes something different. Darren Richeter is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford, and like Scott, he's been working with the people of Cambodia for over a decade. The, the Khmer Rouge became strong during the early 1970s, mid-1970s, and, and actually took over uh, the, the Kingdom of Cambodia in 1975. So, in fact, April 17, 1975, um, the leader of the Khmer Rouge took control of Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia. Pol Pot, so he really came up with the vision of having ultimate equity within society is to move to an agrarian society where everybody is basically a subsistence farmer collective um, through the country. And that was what his vision for moving Cambodia in the 1970s was, is to push it into this agronomic society. Basically, a very radical implementation of a new idea loosely based in, in communism but really this idea that people are going to move out of the city, people are going to forget about the cultural heritage, forget about any ties to the West or any ties to traditional Cambodian culture and go back to a rice farming culture. And and that was going to, to lead them to freedom was the idea. And then he's sort of applying that back to Cambodia with this idealized in his mind, idealized time where the Angkor Empire was, was a different uh, entity. This radical shift to what author Alex Alvarez calls a mythic past, when Pol Pot wanted the rapidly developing country to return to its roots in the Angkor Empire, is when the familiar story of agriculture and human conflict breaks down. It's at this point when I saw these two driving forces cease to push and pull against each other and merge into a single entity. The end result of this twisted ideology was the Cambodian genocide. Alvarez and others who have studied this highlight the agricultural motivations of the Khmer Rouge as a defining characteristic, separating the Cambodian genocide from others. Darren Richeter agrees, but like Alvarez, cautions against labeling Pol Pot's intentions too succinctly. Trying to rationalize or make sense out of his notion is, I think, a hard thing to do because it just obviously retrospectively looks it looks completely insane and the way they implemented it was so vicious and so brutal that it 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 just doesn't seem like there's any way it it could ever have worked ever they literally literally marched people out of the cities Phnom Penh being the major city of, of Cambodia at the time they literally marched people out at gunpoint uh into the rice fields and started them uh performing slave labor in in an agricultural society and for, you know, th three and a half years, 
you know, the atrocities that occurred there were, were just overwhelming, just, just, a, um, just a litany of, of different kinds of human rights violations and criminal activity, really. Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge targeted anyone who didn't uphold the agrarian ideology. This group included leaders of industry, students, doctors, lawyers, journalists, and a number of diverse ethnic and religious communities. The Pol Pot regime, if we want to call it that, that lasted then until 1979 when the, the Vietnamese then invaded. And that effectively then collapsed the Khmer Rouge uh, complete ruling party. They moved out into the periphery of Cambodia, up into the highlands, and you then had a long-standing civil war that persisted uh, up into the 1990s when the UN finally came in and took over for uh, Vietnam. And then ultimately, we had the, the ceasefire, Pol Pot dies, and you have now a regeneration of Cambodia into a, a more stable entity. Beginning in the mid-1970s, reports began to surface about the Cambodian genocide. Journalists and investigators moved into the country to try to uncover the extent of the human rights violations. The first stop for many were the so-called killing fields, areas where many who opposed Pol Pot were taken, brutally murdered, and buried. Remembering the agricultural motivations of the Khmer Rouge, the killing fields become even more than a tragic monument to those lost. For me... The fields themselves become a reflection of the moment when agriculture and human conflict, two of the biggest forces that shaped Cambodia, merged together, a moment that the country is still dealing with today. Darren and Scott brought several of their students to one particular field, Chong Yek, just outside of Phnom Penh. I guess the story really starts the night before when we had a little bit of a a briefing of what was going to happen the next day. So Darren sat down with us and talked to us about about what we were going to see and uh, and how it's going to be a pretty serious day and that we really need to if anybody if anybody at any time feels nervous or or depressed or uh, you know upset about the things that we're seeing that we should really take take that in and that's a normal feeling and to really talk about that. I also spoke with Nick Hershey, a college sophomore. We were already in somewhat of a somber mood, and then we took a bus to the killing fields, and uh, you walk in and there's a gate, and you walk up this like paved area to this kind of stupa-like structure. Right in front of you is this big tower, and piled up on in just hundreds of layers in this tower are the skulls of people who have been dug up from this, this one set of fields. And, you know, we all just kind of stopped and stared at this, this tower of, of mourning. Etron Doan, another college sophomore, was there with Nick and Arjun as well. And we all took off our shoes when we went in inside the, this tower structure. And inside was this glass showcase full of skulls. And... Close to the ground, um, what was being showcased were a lot of very crude tools that I would imagine was used in farm work suddenly be transformed into weapons of murder. You walk through this tight space around around this tower of skulls and you see uh, there are little stickers on each one. And what 
these colors represented was how these people were killed by which tool. So when I looked at the skull and I saw the color of the sticker on it, I can trace it to the tools that were being displayed on the very bottom. At some point, halfway through this little, you're circling this little tower, you're like, I need to get out of here. This is hot and enclosed and terrifying. We're walking around very silently. You're kind of, everyone's kind of in their own bubble. Uh, then when you get back out, you can put your shoes back on and walk around the grounds. They have these dirt paths that lead around. So I, I walked out then and I started on the first dirt path. And I start walking, so this time some of these paths are no longer paved anymore. I'm just walking on the dirt. And I see these signs uh, that says, Beware, don't step on bones. I look down to my right, and there you see what looks to be a femur sticking out of the, the, the dirt. Um, they kind of intentionally left some things where they were, um, in hopes that it would create a more organic feel feeling as you walked around killing fields. Your mind can't help but wander to what, to picturing, imagining, and yeah. And so you're walking. It's a, it's very, it's a, you know, the it's it's not a not an unnatural place, right? There's all this all this nature around, but it feels you you just just burning in your stomach when you're walking through about where am I and what what happened here. In the four years the Khmer Rouge ruled Cambodia, they murdered two million people, nearly one quarter of the entire country's population. In the aftermath, the country struggled to rebuild itself, beginning with its food and water systems. How deeply can those scars run from what happened in the past? They run so deeply that it affects not only the healthcare system, but it affects the drinking water. One of the, the big outcomes of the Khmer Rouge period was, is what I would call a knowledge vacuum. They wiped out the people who were educated, the people who had any type of power. And where we normally think of agriculture as being something that has passed down from one generation to another, so much of that of the generation was wiped out that we lost that transfer of knowledge on common agricultural practices during the Khmer Rouge period. And so it's right to say that if you now go and, and talk to many of the farmers, there are some that have some semblance of, of knowledge passed down, but many who do not. And that is a, a very uh, unique situation to Cambodia compared to the rest of the world. And it's a big challenge that they face in is rebuilding that agricultural knowledge. Years after Pol Pot, agriculture and human conflict remained merged together as the rebuilding processes struggled with the population's severe mental health trauma. Darren Richeter and his team are helping Cambodian populations both inside and outside of the country's borders to deal with this. He collaborates with the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, commonly known as the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, who are taking the most senior members of the Khmer Rouge to trial for their alleged roles in the Cambodian genocide. Probably the most frequently occurring mental health problem that, that we're seeing in this data is what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. No matter what you're trying to do, you're just playing out that violence in your head. And it comes to you in different ways. It comes, you know, it's not that you remember it, it's that you can't stop remembering it. You can't forget it. 
what our lab is hoping to bring is some uh, quantified version of talking about the human suffering that occurred and statistically what that means for the direct survivors and then the survivors' children. And in the in the case of the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal, one of the reparations that the parties, the civil parties, the, 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 the survivors actually wanted was greater access to mental health. One of the major challenges is the sheer number of people affected and the peculiar way PTSD seems to pass from one generation to the next. So we're talking about a fraction of the population with a diagnosable mental health entity like PTSD, where that fraction is, is you know, a third of the population. Like That's a huge statistic, and it's not like anything that we're seeing uh, in, in other samples that we can think about. In every population with a high prevalence of PTSD, we do sort of see that's been every population that's been studied. We do sort of see that the the second generation has a tendency toward developing other other mental health problems like depression and anxiety. And so, so it's not the case that you know we're saying necessarily that it's sort of like uh, inherited more that the behavior of the parents, the, the, the parenting strategies have changed because the parents have a mental health disorder like PTSD. And so they therefore may be um, uh, treating their children in a different way than a population with less PTSD. In Cambodia, one of the sort of organic ways that that community that country as a community sort of deals with uh, the realities of PTSD is through their their religion. More than 90% of the people in Cambodia are Buddhists, and uh, Buddhist meditation is a way that, that uh, symptoms of PTSD are sort of dealt with in Cambodia. While PTSD and other mental health issues are still prominent across the country, Cambodia has grown significantly in recent years as they have untangled agriculture and human conflict. According to Richeter, a lot of progress has been made by re-establishing safe communities, especially in rural areas. And according to Fendorf, many of these communities have joined around access to safe water. Many locals seek help drilling water wells for their home, and Scott has worked with a lot of families to ensure that their wells don't tap into invisible sources of arsenic hiding in the soils. While visiting... Scott took his students to a rural home where they could see the community gather to drill a well. We basically went to this house out in, I mean, it seems like it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not really in the middle of nowhere, but, but out in the, in the countryside. And it's on this line of, of houses that are all just kind of small, um, small little wooden structures. And... Then we go there, and there are three day laborers who we kind of watch them get it set up as Scott explains everything, and they're doing all the work. And they're kind of hand, it's a hand drill, so there's nothing mechanical about it. You're literally pushing a bar back and forth while you go 40 meters deep. You just sit there and manually turn the cutting blade with a crossbar and keep pushing down, pushing down while the water is oozing up around your feet and so on. In the beginning, it was just the three hired workers drilling the well. But soon after, Arjun, Nick, and the rest of the students joined in. They told me that neighbors watched, paused, then walked over to chat. The farther the drill bit dug, the more people joined the project. Groups of people like this one are rejoining across the country as they reassociate food and water with feelings of community and safety 
and disassociate the feelings attached to their trauma. From this point of view, just the process of drilling a single well helps create a safe environment that allows people to heal. Back in Phnom Penh, the city continues to grow. High rises stretch to the sky. People move quickly across neatly arranged storefronts. Music often echoes between buildings, and the smells of fish, rice, and steamed banana leaves permeate the air. The country is once again able to export rice, and at least within city limits, water treatment plants are able to provide for nearly one and a half million residents. While the country is healing, the scars of the past are still there. So we often think about the science and technology to meet, say, sustainable food or sustainable water systems. Um, but what we f- often forget is that it's not just an economic, not a scientific and not a technological problem, but it also has a big cultural aspect. And that's what we were trying to add to really recognize a full suite of social, economic, political factors that go along with the science and technology to meet the challenges of the developing world. So it's kind of just this, this overarching thread of how has Cambodia recovered since the Khmer Rouge? But then even connecting that to the Khmer Empire, what have been the things that people have struggled with here throughout history? Special thanks to Scott, Darren, Arjun, Nick, and Atron for sharing their stories and sounds from their time in Cambodia. You can find a list of all the music and additional sound recordings on our website, janyothrow.com. Generation Anthropocene is Miles Trayer, Mike Osborne, and me, Leslie Chang. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is janantro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at Jen Anthropocene. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.